Turn to Ephesians 4. We are back in verses 17 to 24 this week. Uh, These eight verses serve as an introduction to the rest of the book. We get a framework here that we're going to be filling in the rest of chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. So follow as I read Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. This is the Word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. So to this point, we have studied through verse 22. Uh, We're going to spend the majority of our time today thinking about verse 23 and really 24. Uh, But let's briefly recap the verses that we've already looked at to get our bearings. Uh, This is about the Christian walk, about living out the Christian life. In verse 1, we were urged to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Verse 17, we're told that we must not walk as the unbelieving world walks. Our Christian life is a walk. It's an ongoing journey in a particular direction that takes lots of time. And it involves obedience. It involves not doing certain things that God says not to do and doing certain things that He says to do. Uh, So we see in our passage at least three ways that the Christian life is directly opposed to the unbelieving world. Number one, the unbelieving world is described as hardening their hearts to the Lord and alienating themselves further and further from Him. On the other hand, Christians are here pictured as in submission to Jesus, having drawn near to Him, hearing about Him, and, and learning and being taught in Him. Uh, The second difference we see, the unbelieving world is described as living in the futility of their minds, uh, thinking themselves enlightened. They're actually darkened in their understanding. On the other hand, Christians are said to be on the path of the renewal of the mind in Christ. Number three, the third difference we see between the Christian life and the unbelieving world, um, the unbelieving world gives themselves over to sins of pleasure, Greedy to practice all kinds of sin, it says. On the other hand, Christians are those who recognize sin as sin. And we understand that all of us are deeply sinful. Understanding this, we know that our desires can't be trusted to lead us. In fact, uh, we have desires, this text says, that deceive us and corrupt us. So we renounce ourselves and put on Christ. Through Him alone... Do we learn and do we grow in what is true and right and good? Uh, So our passage talks about putting off the old self, putting on the new self. There, We said last week uh, two aspects to this. There's the initial putting off and putting on and an ongoing putting off and putting on. Uh, The initial putting off and putting on is what happens when someone becomes a Christian. 
And, uh, you know, when we're born again, the old self dies, the new self comes to life. On the other hand, there's this ongoing putting off and putting on. Uh, In one sense, the old self is dead and our fundamental identity has changed. We are in Christ. But the process of learning to live out of our new identity is an ongoing process. And I think that's really the thrust of our passage in Ephesians 4. Our walk with the Lord is ongoing. And as we walk, we are to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self. Uh, The renewal of the mind really undergirds both of these. Our mind is renewed in the truth of God's Word. It's where we learn who we really are, uh, who who God really is, and uh, what we need to put off and put on. Another way to think about this is uh, this ongoing putting off and putting on. Another way to say it is the Christian life is a walk of ongoing repentance. Over and over again, turning from our sin, turning to Christ, and His ways. Uh, Because even though Jesus has rescued us from the eternal consequences of our sin, we still have indwelling sin inside of us. We've been recreated in Christ by the Spirit. We have a new self, but we also have an old self. I would even say our primary identity is in the new self, but this old self is still a part of us, the flesh, uh, with remaining sin, corrupt through deceitful desires. We're like Jekyll and Hyde. And the rest of the Christian life is putting off the old, putting on the new. Last week I uh, talked about putting off the old and gave you two practical ways to do this. Understanding that the renewal of the mind and the Scriptures undergirds all of it. Number one, whatever the Scriptures tell us is sinful, uh, we have to kill it in us. Whatever whatever it says objectively, uh, we get rid of it. Number two, understanding that there is much that we won't see even if we see it in the Scriptures, we won't be able to, to detect it in us. Then we can pray along with, we looked at Psalm 139 last week, Search me, know me, Lord, expose me, show me my sin, and lead me in the way of life. Uh, that's putting off the old. This week, putting on the new. Or pursuing a life of holiness. Uh, seeking to grow more and more established in who God has created us and redeemed us to be. Now, these issues of killing sin and pursuing a holy life are not separate. Um, Killing sin is a necessary and integral part of living a holy life. Without killing sin, we will not be pursuing a holy life. You can think about it in terms of offense and defense. Uh, Defense is killing sin. Offense is the pursuit of a holy life. You have to have both. Without one, you get destroyed. So, a couple preliminary cautions about holiness. Number one, don't let that word holiness scare you. I think sometimes we think about holiness and we think holier than thou. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, Someone who is holier than thou is high-minded and sees himself or herself as better than others. Someone who is growing in holiness understands that we are utterly sinful and weak and helpless in and of ourselves, the path of holiness is a path of dying dependence to self and dependence on, or dying to self and depending on the Lord um, for everything, for forgiveness, cleansing, wisdom, strength, uh, for spiritual fruit in our lives, for good things to come. you know I mean, we depend on him for everything. Another caution, 
when we talk about holiness, I think it's pretty easy to say, well, it's not like we're ever going to actually attain it, a holy life. That's a very unhealthy place to be. Uh, It's a foreign thought to the Scriptures, a thought that needs to be taken captive for obedience to Christ. Uh, Here's a Scripture quotation to fight that thought. Hebrews 12, 12-14 says, Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So how important is pursuing a holy life? We're called to strive for it. And without it, without holiness, we will not see the Lord. So how do we pursue a holy life? Um, I have two ways for you. And, uh, you know, without these, this is not an exhaustive uh, treatment, but without these, there is no pursuit of holiness. The first has to do with being reoriented to our true identity. The second, with living out our identity. How do we pursue a holy life? Number one, number one, we remember and rest in and rejoice in the old message. Number two, we walk in the old paths. This is what Paul is really trying to get us to do in Ephesians. Uh, the first half, we're reminded of the ins and outs of the gospel. The second half, we're urged on in a life of holiness, a life of obedience to the Lord where we grow uh, more and more to be like Him. So the first thing, remembering, resting in, and rejoicing in the old message. Romans 1.16 is a familiar passage. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation or for salvation to everyone who believes. And I understand that to mean not only that the gospel is the power that converts us and brings us into Christ initially, but also is the power that fuels us uh, in living out our salvation all the way until we get home. So, not only do we believe and rest in and rejoice in the gospel to become Christians, but over and over again we remember and rest in and rejoice in the gospel to mature as Christians. Uh, in Christ, we have a new identity. In one sense, we've already put on the new self when we became Christians, but in another sense, we have to put on the new self again and again. Again and again, being reminded of the gospel and resting in the gospel and rejoicing in the gospel until we get home. The gospel fuels us along. So one aspect of this is remembering and resting in and rejoicing in the right now finality of our salvation in Jesus Christ. It is finished. All of our sins were paid for in full on the cross. And not only that, at that moment when you first believed, you were robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, putting on, uh, so that in a very real sense, when God looks at you now, He sees Jesus, both now and forever. He sees Jesus' blood that atoned for your sins and that washed you clean, and he sees Jesus' righteousness, which is your unhindered access into the family of God. Our sins have been forever washed away, and we have put on Christ. We are robed in His righteousness right now. It's final. It's done. Uh, we're good and safe in the eyes of God. 
Now, it's not like those robes ever actually come off, uh, but they do come off in our mind's eye, meaning at times we feel less forgiven or you know, feel less uh, worthy of fellowship with God. Again, it's not that we're worthy, it's that Christ is worthy. So there's this sense in which, yes, the robes never come off, but another sense in which we have to continually re-robe, uh, remind ourselves of who we are. We are chosen, adopted, redeemed. We are perfect, spotless, blameless, righteous in the eyes of God. Here's an easy way to apply this in less than an hour. Uh, Go to church. It's Communion Sunday. Worship God. Meditate on the lyrics as you sing them. Get a bulletin and meditate on the lyrics reading along during the special music. Listen to and meditate on the Gospel in the Communion Sermon and then eat and drink the Gospel in the Lord's Supper. So one aspect of this remembering, resting, and rejoicing in uh, the Gospel is being immersed in the right now finality of our salvation. It is finished. We are already robed in Christ. But another aspect of remembering and rejoicing in and resting in uh, is to remember that the fulfillment of our salvation is not yet. We have eternal security, but its fulfillment is not in this life. Our hope is not in this life. We have a rock-solid hope. It's just not a hope that will be realized on this side of the grave. So again and again, we have to be recalibrated in the fact that this is not our home. In this life, we only get a foretaste of what is to come. And and this recalibration of our eternal fulfillment of our salvation enables us to endure hardships, clinging to the promises that we are convinced, we know will be fulfilled in His time. And it enables us to live with self-abandon, pouring out our lives in service to the Lord while we're here. Um, You know, I think maybe one aspect why we might struggle with that part is because we haven't experienced much persecution as the church in America. Maybe that's changing, but, uh, you know, it can lead to sickness in our souls, what Paul Tripp calls eternity amnesia. Nothing reorients us to heaven and to our eternal hope like suffering, uh, whether in the form of persecution or trial. So, trying to give you a couple main ways to put on the new self. The first is to always be remembering and resting in, rejoicing in the old message, the gospel. Next is to stay walking in the old paths. And where I get that is from Jeremiah 6.16, which says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths or the old paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. He goes on to say that uh, the cost for not staying on the old paths is devastation. The old paths make up the good way, the way of salvation, the way that leads to life. And another way, another name for the old paths is the commands of God. Uh, God's commands are not a hindrance. They are actually an amazing grace that He has shown us the way of life. They are a hindrance to our sin nature, but we need all the hindrances we can get there. Uh, Without holiness, we will not see the Lord. And a, a key aspect of holiness is killing sin. Another key aspect is remembering and resting in and rejoicing in the Gospel. 
Yet another is doing the commands of God. Doing what He says to do. If you don't like that, then you won't like the rest of the book of Ephesians, which at times is going to give us something to kill. At times is going to call us to remember and rest and rejoice in the Gospel. But the, the major weight of the rest of the letter is simply giving us commands to do. Once upon a time, we were not able to do the commands of God. We were dead in our sins. But God recreated us in Christ so that we can now do what we once could not do. Uh, do we perfectly obey? No. But it doesn't depend, our fellowship with God, we go back to the Gospel. It doesn't depend on our perfect obedience. Nonetheless, when we go back to the Gospel, remembering, resting, and rejoicing in the sufficiency of Christ, what do we do next? The commands of God. And doing the commands of God is not optional. A couple familiar passages. Uh, James 1, be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then this one from the Sermon on the Mount, which strikes me because I never, I've always heard about the, the man that builds his house on the sand and the, versus the man that builds his house on the rock. It doesn't take much to know which one's better. I mean, the guy on the rock, you know, the storm comes and you're, you're good. Uh, the guy on the sand, everything gets wiped away. But listen to what distinguishes the two of them. What's the difference? Jesus says, Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So again, once upon a time, dead in our sins, we were not able to do the commands of God at all. But God made us alive in Christ and has enabled us by the power of His Spirit to, want to now do what we once could not do and do them we must. Uh, doing the commands of God is a major aspect to pursuing a holy life. Doing what He says to do and regardless of how we feel. Uh, we talked about this last, last week in putting off the old, and it's the same in putting on the new. Last week I used the example of Rosaria Butterf- Butterfield. Uh, she was a lesbian. She was reading the Bible. She came to see that her homosexuality was sin. But at the time that God revealed that to her, she did not feel like her homosexuality was sin. She said it felt like life, plain and simple. But God opened her eyes to see the truth that it was sin. So she repented of her sin even though it did not feel like a sin because she saw the truth and she followed the truth. We don't follow our feelings. We discipline our feelings to follow the truth. That's talking about killing sin. Uh, That's defense. What about on offense? The principle's the same. We are to pursue the things that we're called to pursue, commanded to pursue, regardless of how we feel about them at the time that we see that we're called to pursue them. And it's not that I'm saying that our feelings are unimportant. Uh, Our feelings are very important. They're just subordinate to the truth. We want our feelings to lock in with a life of holiness. We don't want begrudging submission the rest of our life. Like We want our heart and our desires and our emotions and our affections to engage in this pursuit. God wants all of us. Our thoughts, our actions, our feelings, our will everything. But the thing that I've seen in myself and I'm sure you can relate with is 
So often, our feelings are in competition with His ways. Because we still have this corrupt old self swarming with deceitful desires, our passage says. And it's pleading with us to depart the path of life and get back on the path to destruction. So, uh, it's just important to know that our feelings always take a back seat to the truth. What does the Word say? Just do that and your feelings will eventually follow suit. Rosaria put it bluntly in her book. She said, I've discovered that the Lord does not change my feelings until I obey Him. Uh, Now, in terms of our desires being transformed in this pursuit of holiness, because we care about that, we want every part of us to lock in, a couple hundred years ago, a guy named Thomas Chalmers uh, preached a sermon that became quite famous called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a little booklet now you can... Buy it on Amazon. Uh, the expulsive power of a new affection. The basic point is unho- or holy desires, new holy desires drive out unholy desires. New holy loves drive out unholy loves. And ultimately, what he's saying is love for God drives out love for the world. Uh, I'm all about that. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I just know that the, desi- the desires often follow the action. Oftentimes we find ourselves in this predicament that we want the unholy way much more at that moment than we want the holy way. But if we continue to choose the path of life over and over again, our holy desires will grow larger and drive out our unholy desires. Maybe not completely. But as we walk along the path of holiness, putting off the old self and putting on the new, certain sinful desires that used to scream at us are now just whispering. You know, there's, there's less of an appeal over time uh, as we walk in the path of life. And that's not to say there aren't new desires screaming. I think that there probably always will be. But uh, you get my drift. Put off the old, put on the new. Alright, gave you two ways last week to be putting off the old. I'm trying to give you two additional general big picture ways to be pursuing a holy life. Always be going back to the old message. Remembering, resting in, rejoicing in the gospel. Uh, Both the fact that our salvation is final right now. And, And this isn't just like a robotic, you know, okay, now it's time to remember. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, you get surprised by sin. You get exposed. God all of a sudden peels back another layer that you weren't looking for and it shocks you. And so it's very sobering and you don't feel good. You don't feel right with God. You feel very unsettled. And so this takes place in real life when you're really unsettled, when you really feel condemned. uh, This remembering and resting and rejoicing in the finality of our salvation right now. Um. Also, the future hope that salvation will indeed be fulfilled, and that recalibrates us in how to live here, because there will be a day when all things are put right, when Jesus returns, when we're with Him forever, when there's no more sin and no more suffering, no more pain or death. And then continue walking in the old paths. Not doing what He says not to do, doing what He says to do. Putting off the old, putting on the new. Um... Not only is this a major framework for the book of Ephesians, this is just a major framework for living the Christian life. Killing sin, 
and pursuing a life of holiness, undergirded by the renewal of the mind in the Word of God. If anybody has anything they want to say right now, uh, jump at it. And if not, you can be thinking about what you want to say because I have a couple applications I want to make. But go ahead. All right, be thinking about what you're going to say. Moving into application. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.7 says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Or you could insert the word holiness there. You could say, Train yourself for the goal of living a holy life. So, if we're going to be serious about holiness, which we see we must be in our passage, uh, we have to train. You know, football season kicks off in about a month. Every team has specific goals for the season. Some teams like Tennessee's are just higher than other teams like Ole Miss or whatever. But uh, uh, every team has specific goals. And in order to pursue these goals, they have trained as hard as they possibly can. Now that's the idea behind 1 Timothy 4.7. The word for train is gumnas, which where we get gymnastics. We talked about this in here before. But it involves getting rid of whatever hinders us from training and working with all of our energy in our training towards the goal. Well, what's the goal? Holiness. So think about it. For an athlete in training, every month is mapped out. Every week is even more meticulously mapped out. Every minute of the day is accounted for. Take some time to uh, search the internet for Tiger Woods' training program. Now, he's struggled in recent years, which I think actually makes him a good illustration for training because we struggle too. Uh, But he struggled in recent years. Even though he struggled, he's easily still one of the top two golfers that's ever played the game. And he probably has the most disciplined training program in the history of the game. Uh, His day starts early, it ends late. Rigorous training. I love this quote I found from him. He said, I view fitness as a long-term strategy for building and maintaining endurance, strength, and agility. It's a continuous cycle of training and recovery. That's what we're talking about. Long-term discipline strategy, uh, training for holiness. It's a continuous cycle. It never ends. A continuous cycle of training and recovery. And here's the way God set it up. Six days of intense training, one day of recovery. Uh, Every day exhausting ourselves to the point where we absolutely need the replenishing rest of sleep. And every week, taking one day uh, to put aside the normal occupations of our lives in order to worship the Lord and to fellowship with other believers and, and just rest from the weekly toil of our work. So, um, question for you. When's the last time you mapped out a training regimen for holiness? We should. Uh, we're commanded to train ourselves for holiness. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 helps us here. It says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we've talked about last week getting rid of the old self, killing sin. Um, but, but this also tells us that a key to training in holiness is also getting rid of weights. Uh, weights are not necessarily sinful, uh, 
They're just not helpful in our disciplined pursuit. So when an athlete is training, there are things that they just can't be about uh, because it's not an asset to the pursuit of the goal. Listen to any Olympic athlete talk about their childhood, and I think that is a great illustration. Well, my childhood was a little different. Well, my friends were off doing this. I mean, I was at the gym. I was with my coach. I was training. You know, for example, last week uh, we talked about television, and Jessica was saying that she's struggling with whether or not to watch a certain show. And we said, this is a gray area. There's not a Bible verse for that. Um, one of the ways that we evaluate that question is in our own conscience with the passage in Romans 14 that says, whatever is not from faith is sin. So we ask ourselves, can I do this in faith to the Lord? Whatever it is. Can I do this unto the Lord? Whatever it is. Now another angle to approach, and we'll just use the same illustration or example, another angle to approach television is to ask yourself, is it a weight? Again, it's a gray area, not, not a Bible verse saying don't or do. Um, but you can ask yourself, is it a weight? It's not necessarily sinful, but is it an asset to my disciplined pursuit of holiness? Does it take away from the time that I would be doing Bible reading, Bible meditation, and prayer? Is there time for both? For some, certainly the answer will be yes. Uh, for others, I suspect, no. Is there time for both? Is my television a weight in my disciplined pursuit of the Lord? Am I staying up too late with it so that I can't wake up as early as I need to be to be about the things that have to be a part of my training regimen for holiness? Um, So here's my challenge to you. And it's not just a challenge to you. It's a challenge for me. This is challenging to think about. Um, And something that I have honestly never... I've done in the day-to-day and thinking about you know things that, okay, I know these things need to be a part of it, and, but you just kind of try to fit them as you go. Um, but come up with a training regimen. And, you know, map out months, map out weeks, map out days. A few things to include to get you started. Uh, weekly worship every week. And if Sunday school is a part of that, that's great. But don't miss church. Your souls need to worship. Uh, You need the Lord's Supper, which we're taking today. Of course, again, daily Bible reading, meditation, uh, every day. And again, the timetable, we fluctuate there. There are different seasons of life. Uh, But you can't go without it. It's not an option to go without it. It's not possible to stay healthy in your soul without daily Bible intake. Daily prayer. The early church had three set times of prayer every day. I've never done that. But hey, it's a, good, it's a good thing to think about even having one time of prayer set every day. Uh, work in fasting. Not something we ever talk about much, but start with one meal. Put it on the calendar, maybe three weeks out. And maybe do it monthly, maybe even weekly. Schedule a time on the calendar where you're going to skip lunch and intentionally seek the Lord in prayer for that hour. Uh, good things to pray about during that hour are current besetting sins, current, you know, just things that are weighing heavy on your heart, things that you don't exactly know what to do with, wisdom that you need for a big decision, whatever it is. Um, make goals for sharing the gospel. Maybe it's intentionally sharing with one person a week or even one person a month. Make goals for serving others in need. Maybe it's inviting a widow for dinner. Um, 
And again, these are a disciplined training regimen. Why do we train? Well, an athlete trains because he wants to be able to get on the field and do things freely that he doesn't even have to think about because it's now a part of who he is because he's trained himself to be there. So I think the organic opportunities that we want for fellowship, service, sharing the gospel, all of that, you know, uh, intimacy with the Lord, they come out of, flow out of this disciplined training for holiness. And all for the purpose of communion with Christ. It says, let us lay aside every weight and sin, running with endurance, looking to Jesus. So weekly worship, what we're after is looking to Christ and, and worshiping God for this great salvation that He's given us in Christ. Daily Bible reading and meditation and prayer, looking to Jesus, communing with Him, uh, fasting to, to meet with Jesus and to be conformed more to His likeness, to intentionally seek to better understand His will and to walk in it in prayer. Uh, sharing Jesus with others helps us grow closer to Jesus because we're kind of scared to do that. And then it you know, helps others to know Him. Serving others, mindful of Jesus, seeking to imitate Jesus. Again, it's not just a challenge for you, but I think it's something worth looking into and something worth uh, giving serious thought to and coming up with a plan fitting your specific context and your specific life that the Lord has you in right now. Uh, Let's spend some time thinking up a disciplined regimen to train for holiness. If you want some help thinking through those things, I'm always here. Uh, And again, immediate application a few minutes from now. You can go to church, sing to God, Rest and rejoice in and uh, remember the gospel as you sing. Read aloud or uh, read along and meditate on the gospel in the special music. Meditate on the gospel in the sermon. It's Communion Sunday. If there's, I mean, we try to have the gospel coming into every sermon, but if there's ever one that's intentionally about the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ, it's Communion Sunday. And remember, rest in, and rejoice in the gospel as we eat it and drink it in the supper because the gospel is the fuel for our holy living. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you uh, sought us out before the foundation of the world. You chose us and adopted us. Um, You redeemed us. Lord, you brought us from death to life. You've forgiven us all of our sins. You've robed us in the righteousness of Christ, Lord Jesus. Um, we are not righteous in and of ourselves, and yet uh, we have been declared to be just as righteous as You are. And You've invited us into uh, forever fellowship with You, uh, with God. And Lord, we're thankful. Uh, Help us to understand these things where I've been in error. Would You stop up ears? But Lord, help us to see all of Your Word. Help us to uh, see that The paths of life are wonderful and life-giving, whether in the form of promise or command. So I just uh, pray that you would establish us in this way and uh, fuel us with the good news of this great salvation in Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. All right, a few minutes, a couple minutes, a few minutes. Thoughts? Or questions? or concerns.
going once. I thought uh, it's interesting bringing up feelings. Um, I, I kind of I was thinking about you know Dr. Young referenced uh, you know Keller's mushy middle uh, theory about the church. You know people that are kind of on the fringes are going to fall away because the culture makes it less popular. And I think that's one of the big signs that I've seen, at least uh, even in my family and their churches, that when feelings start to take supremacy over the Word and God's will and the Word is expressed in the Word. Um, and I was just thinking that, I mean, it, it, it's, it's very helpful to have friends or, you know, be in a community that values the word over everything else and is not afraid to say, you know, if I'm struggling with something or whatever, if I bring up an idea that's in conflict with truth, that to have people to say, no, that's not what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, and, uh, you know, help help you in that submission to the word. Amen. It's like a third party, I guess. Back to speaking the truth in love. Yeah. Yeah, and that, you know, it's different to say on a... Um, you know, on our statement of beliefs that we value the word above all else, and then to actually put that into practice, it comes in direct conflict with us. You know, I mean, we have deceitful desires that lead us the other way, and so to actually bring that doctrinal statement that we, you know, the word of God above everything, to bring it to life and to bear in our lives, um, is a different thing, and we need each other to be able to do that. I think we're all prone to follow our hearts. Anything else? Good thoughts. All right. We're done. Have a good day.